there are different types of risk and reward in both business and in life. And we have too many blind spots and ways of misjudging the more extreme versions of them. So for example, the stock market goes up and down every day. That's, that's not risk. But then every now and then something like the subprime crisis of 2009 comes along or the dot-com collapse that changed the underlying structure very rapidly. Those are the kinds of moments when you can either get in a lot of trouble if you're not approaching it properly or it can be a tremendous opportunity. There's a revolution taking place right now. Talent and intelligence are equally distributed throughout the world, but opportunity is not. The talent economy, the idea that at the center of work is the talent, is the individual. Companies today face a global war for talent, and high-skilled talent is demanding flexibility around the way they work and the way they live. This podcast brings together thought leaders, staffing experts, and top freelancers to talk about the evolving nature of work and how companies can navigate these changes to remain competitive, drive innovation, and ensure success. Welcome to the Talent Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Estes. My guest today is Eric Stetler, who recently joined TopTal as the chief economist. Eric is a data scientist, venture capitalist, and founding partner of First Rock Capital, where he built and managed a portfolio of over 50 tech startups. A longtime advocate of the talent economy, Eric only invested in companies that embrace global recruiting and remote work an approach that he describes as investing in talent, not real estate. Hi, my name is Eric Stetler, and thank you so much for having me, Paul. This is such an honor, and I'm so looking forward to working with you and everyone else involved in this. So excited to talk to you. Before I get into the position of chief economist and your career and some of the insights that you have to share as we, we start this journey, I want to talk a little bit about how we came to bringing you on as a chief economist. I had talked to the, the CEO of of TopTal Tasso and said, hey, we need to get some really deep thinking as it relates to this structural change that's going on in the talent economy. He wanted to bring on a chief economist. And so I said, well, let me go into the network, the TopTal network, and see if there's anybody who has that experience. And in 24 hours, the team gave me your background and it was a perfect fit. Not only do you have the background in financial markets, not only are you a statistician and, and studied at one of the premier schools, but you had a VC fund whose premise was exactly what we're advocating for as it relates to global talent. Everything that I've learned and anything that I've accomplished is only the result of all of the wonderful teachers and mentors I've had along the way. The credit all goes to them, and I think especially the entrepreneurs. So any entrepreneurs out there, I've learned the most from people like you. In terms of TopTal, so I had been focusing on the global talent thesis for my venture funds, which, by the way, all of the more high-level, lofty things that we discussed aside, was the single biggest problem that every single startup in the U.S. Well, now obviously, I didn't speak to everyone, but every single one that I spoke to highlighted as their bottleneck to growth. So it was a reaction to a very serious bottleneck to tech companies in the U.S. You ask all the, the best entrepreneurs in New York, Silicon Valley, any, any of the, the big tech hubs, what's your biggest constraint? They'll say talent. It's just such a competitive market here and so expensive. And it's not just the cost, it's the probability of retention. So it's not just the cost thing at all. And so it was a reaction to that, but it was also just realizing I had a lot of benefits in life. I just talked about all the people that I've gotten to learn from uh, both more direct colleagues and and entrepreneurs, and then even people famous like like Nassim Taleb and 
and everything. I mean, to sit in the same room as this guy was just such an extraordinary privilege. So, so uh, I thought, okay, you, you're very, you've been very fortunate. And the best you can do with that is to try to contribute to a world where anyone has at least closer to the level of opportunities that you've had. And obviously we're not, the reason I hesitated there is we're, we're so far away from that that I don't want to come off as saying that I think I can fix that. It, it's going to take concerted effort for a long time to get to true equality of opportunity. But you can make a dent. And if you make a dent and someone else out there is making a dent from their direction and enough dents are being made, eventually the problem will shatter. So I thought, find a way to make a dent. So that was the venture fund with the global talent thesis. And I learned about TopTel because it was inevitable that I would in terms of being in the business of global talent. A lot of people that I met through the national course of my business either worked directly as a member of it or they, they of course, have heard about it. And so I can't remember, but in a good way, I can't remember the exact moment I heard about it because it was such a, an obvious thing that happened just being in the business of global tech talent that the name TopTel came up so quickly. And also, I was just so impressed by the people I knew who, who were involved with it. So when I began to finish my venture fund, so venture funds have a finite life in terms of the active investment period, I wanted to continue. I did not necessarily want to launch another fund yet, not for any bad reason, but it's just it's a substantial undertaking, obviously, to launch another fund. And I also thought about the venture capital industry. This is a whole other matter, but the venture capital industry is changing in many ways as well. So I also wanted to have time to reflect on, on that. I certainly did not want to stop working with entrepreneurs and stop working with talent around the world because I love it. And obviously, those kinds of skills in terms of data science, in terms of technology, is something where you use it or lose it. So I thought you cannot just do a mini retirement. I wasn't interested in that and I just never crossed my mind. And then I remembered, okay, you've met so many fascinating people who have been involved in TopTel one way or another. Why not switch to that so that you can continue doing what you love most, which is working with brilliant entrepreneurs and speaking with other brilliant people who are thinking about the forefront of questions about technology and talent. It was basically, it was a no-brainer. So I joined uh, about two years ago. That's been one of the things I've been amazed with as I've started my journey with TopTel is the company actually lives the model that it is advocating for. Let's go back to your background. Studied at Harvard, did some stats work there, and are a venture capitalist. Take me through your journey of really understanding how global talent could be accessed to innovate and drive change. I got my start in New York as a data scientist and economist helping the global financial community to deal with whenever there were large problems, so to speak, in the global financial market. So things such as the subprime collapse of 2009. So that was obviously one stage of my life. But because it was New York, of course, I met people from all over the world. And I was inspired by so many of the people I met who had come from very far away and had just fascinating new business ideas to bring to the U.S. markets, which, of course, are massive competitive markets. That finally made me realize it took longer than it frankly should have, that there were so many people like them that also could bring these, these world-changing ideas to the world's largest market. And we no longer needed to wait for them to have the chance to come to New York physically to do that. 
your work in, in looking at big events and, and statistically how companies and organizations and hedge funds could think about these events was inspired by a professional relationship that you had with a professor that teaches at NYU who really focuses on this area. Tell me a little bit about that. So throughout university, my undergraduate studies, I had the extraordinary good fortune of an ongoing internship, so summers, winters, and arguably plenty of time when I should have been in class studying, of working with this hedge fund that was a family of funds. And one of the fund managers was Nassim Taleb, who is now pretty famous as the author of The Black Swan, which is generally viewed as one of the most, I would say, influential books on how we think about risk reward, especially in extreme circumstances in business and in life. I've heard people, everyone from entrepreneurs to Harvard professors and business CEOs say that his writings have been some of the most influential on their thinking as, as anything else. So his overall thinking is there are different types of risk and reward in both business and in life. And we often, we have too many blind spots and ways of misjudging the more extreme versions of them. So for example, the stock market goes up and down every day. That's, that's not risk, or at least not structural risk. That's just daily variation. But then every now and then, something like the subprime crisis of 2009 comes along, or the dot-com collapse, or things like that, that change the structure, the underlying structure, very rapidly. And obviously, the contributing factors had been there for a while. They were building beneath the surface. But then suddenly, it comes to a head and, and the structure changes. So those are the kinds of moments when you can either get in a lot of trouble if you're not approaching it properly, if you're not properly aware of these kinds of events, or it can be a tremendous opportunity. And obviously, we'll get much more into that later. Basically, his philosophy was, there are, always, there are always these large structural risks, some we know about and some we don't. And it's the ones we don't know about. So unknown structural risks that can basically be the black swan. I found it to be fascinating, both intellectually and obviously just exciting as, as a way of viewing the world as these large events that, that come and change history. So that got me started in studying them both professionally as a data scientist, but also thinking about them in terms of my own career trajectory as well. One of the interesting articles I read just today was how the coronavirus is is causing a massive remote work experiment in China. You know, I think that's something that nobody would have planned for. And now companies are saying, hey, this remote thing is not an option. It's the only way that will keep business critical functions up and running. When you think of your experience of, of looking at black swan events, how did that shape your thesis for your investment fund? My first job was dealing with black swan events in the, in the bad sense, in terms of events that can, we tend to think of as major downside risks. So basically, the subprime crisis that I already mentioned, if I were still in that particular line of work, I'd probably be in Brussels right now for if something truly, if a true structural disaster happens with the EU and the Euro, with Brexit and everything. So things like that. And... When I got to know these entrepreneurs in New York from all over the world, and I got to see how quickly they can change our understanding of entire industries, that was, I know obviously that sometimes technological disruption can be, can be controversial sometimes, and that's another very interesting topic to discuss. But for me, that's a good thing 
when a new entre- when an entrepreneur offers an, uh, a paradigm shift to a to a large industry that opens up a new market. And that finally made me think there's another kind of black swan event out there, which is the upside kind. So not just major downside risk. And by the way, Talib talks about this as well. He he does discuss entrepreneurs. He has tremendous respect for entrepreneurs. He discusses it with venture capital. His book, Anti-Fragile, talks a lot about this. It's the sequel to the Black Swan. So he, he also discusses that there are positive Black Swans out there as well. Even though they might sound like two of the most different jobs or different focuses in the world, my pre-venture capital life actually did carry over quite well in terms of the framework for thinking in terms of extreme risk and reward and also rare but high-impact events once I became a venture capitalist. So it, it did carry over. You know, we talk a lot about in, in the global talent economy about how sometimes the most interesting insights can come from someone outside of the field or at least tangential to the field. And I've experienced that intellectually, that some of the most interesting ideas that I've received as a venture capitalist uh, in finance and, and other roles have come from other parts of my life. So I'm very grateful to that. I think that it's always interesting to see these patterns that emerge beneath the surface of what might look like very different industries or very different contexts. One of the reasons that we're really excited to be working with you is that you bring a unique perspective, not only from the hedge fund statistical work that you do, but your thesis around your VC fund was the idea that talent is everywhere, but opportunity is not. And it's one of the greatest opportunities of our time to fix that. And and you approach that from venture capital perspective, saying, hey, engaging with global talent is a responsibility that companies and startups need to think about. As you look into the next year being chief economist and really diving into the talent economy from your perspective, what is the most exciting thing you're eager to learn about? I'm most excited to tackle the tough questions together, not just the team, but also the, our, our readers and listeners and our, our various partners to really tackle some of these, these big questions on. We all know that the world is changing in terms of the talent economy, in terms of technology, and that brings so many tremendous ramifications in, in our careers and our lives. And we have general ideas about, therefore, what? So, therefore, what should you do with your career, with your business? But I think that this is all still so recent, at least as a formal dialogue, that there is no playbook yet. So for the businesses that are looking to say, okay, like we need to get, we know we need to get involved in this, but how do we begin? And people for their careers saying, I I know I want to do this or I need to do this. How do I begin? And what are the best actions to take under what circumstances? I think there's such a rich frontier in front of us in terms of questions to explore. So I'm looking forward to that above all is really, really throwing ourselves together up against some of these big questions as a conversation, obviously conversations like this, but, but ongoing dialogue with our readers and partners, because in my experience, that's always how the best insights have, have come along. When you were doing your work, educating, whether it was hedge fund managers or people in the finance industry about the unknown unknowns, how did you get them to understand the importance of things that weren't at their top 10 list of things that they were worried about? We're at the very beginning of people understanding the opportunity of engaging with on-demand remote talent. 
There's a bunch of short-term things that companies and people are thinking about. And this is maybe on the radar, but but not on the list. And one of your roles as chief economist will be to help people understand the framework and understand the why, the why you were passionate about this when you were doing your venture capital, why others that are starting to talk more about this are passionate about it and, and the opportunity it provides. So it was certainly a learning process. And I think that I one big thing that I took out of what did and did not work was that stories can be much more compelling sometimes than statistics. I'm a statistician, so obviously I love data, but it always needs to be very tightly interwoven with compelling case studies that illustrate both what can happen, but also obviously sometimes as uh, warnings as well of, you know, if you do not properly prepare for technological change and for the, the changing landscape of talent. For example, with technology, I would often point out any industry that thinks that it is not in that technology is not relevant to it is probably the next industry that's going to get disrupted. Because if you'd ask, for example, the hotel industry, is technology, is software relevant to you, like in a profound way, they probably would have said no. They'd say, of course, we use it, but we're, we're never going to be disrupted. You can't, you know, build a virtual hotel. And they were thinking about it wrong. And then Airbnb came along and it changed the paradigm of the job to be done. So the, the whole concept of what's the job to be done here. The job in this case was having lodging and Airbnb reinvented what it meant to find that. The same way Uber reinvented what it meant to, to get transportation. And obviously the car companies, if you'd asked them before Uber came along, are you, are you a very relevant area for, for tech? As we tend to use the term, they would have said, of course not. That's tech is for all those fancy industries, not, not cars or, or car rentals rather. So I always make the case to them, like if you look at the big disruptions at the time or before they happened, it might have seemed like the last place on earth that the big tech, next tech disruption was going to happen. Similar with talent. So basically telling stories like this about the consequences of if you fail to foster a work environment that takes advantage of the best talent available to you, both in your own employees, but also globally, that the consequences that can have if an employee leaves to build, for example, a lot of startups, and this is a warning, a lot of startups sometimes they start because an employee is upset with how their company is running and they eventually get fed up and say, okay, like if they're not going to take my, my advice, then maybe I'll just build a company I wish my current employer was. That is an example. It's an extreme example, but a lot of, it's one of many examples of why you really need to care about this. So I would always make the case to my potential investors and partners that I would say talent by far is the most valuable resource in the world by far. And it's the one resource you don't need to worry about all the other things like logistics and infrastructure that you do need to worry about with most other business models. So if I, if I just stopped using the word talent and just told you I'm talking about this resource out there, and I didn't tell you what I'm talking about, and I said it multiplies the more you use it, it strengthens the more you use it, it doesn't need to be shipped uh, in order to be plugged into the global economy. You think I was nuts. You think I'm talking about something magic here. And you say that's, that's impossible, but it, it is. It, it is possible. It's talent. If you think about it, its characteristics versus other resources. And then finally, I make the case in terms of how, and this goes back to Talib, how we have blind spots. Any change that is not a simple linear progression 
is going to, to accumulate to accumulate much faster than you probably think. So Moore's law with computing power doubling every two years for a given size processor is a famous example. There's a story I love to tell about to just demonstrate the power of exponential change, which is what technology and talent are, which is an old parable called the rice and the chessboard, where a man did a favor for a king and the king said, so what do you want, riches, gold? And he said, no, I just want food for my family. So place one grain of rice on the first square of a chessboard and then two on the second square and then four and then eight. So double the amount on each consecutive square. So there are 64 squares on a chessboard. And so then the question is, how many grains do you think were on the final, the final piece? And people, they understand it's probably a big number. What they don't realize is that the final square of the chessboard would have a pile much larger than Mount Everest. And I don't even know how to pronounce the number, but it has about 19 zeros behind it. And that's only in 64 squares. So I always use that as a visual example of anything that accumulates. And that's knowledge, that's technology. You are vastly underestimating how big this will be soon. We are still on the first few squares of the chessboard. When you were talking, I was thinking about if you just take human knowledge or the capacity of humans to provide value, how little of that we actually use. You know, I've spent 20 years in, in corporate America, and I was always amazed at even the full-time employees that would show up and, you know, sit in meetings and the time that was wasted. And, you know, you, I had did a survey, like how many people feel productive at work? What percentage of your time do you think you're actually productive, providing value to the company and value to customers? And the number people would give after they thought about it for a little bit was about 40 to 60%. And that underutilized capacity, especially in a world that is changing as rapidly, should be concerning. Human capital is, is an expensive but extremely valuable and underutilized resource. You talk a lot about the power of optionality. Tell me a little bit about what that means and, and how you think of it as it relates to human capital. So I think we can all agree that options are good, especially when you're facing potential change. So, for example, if you're a business and you don't know what the next big hit in your in your particular market is going to be the next the next trend, the next craze. You need to be flexible, obviously, because you need to be ready to capitalize on it. For example, think about let's take an extreme example. Let's say that you you make merchandising for, for movies. So action figures, T shirts, things like that. Two two movies are about to come out. One you know that generally one will be a blockbuster and one is going to be a flop. You need to be ready. You can't just build before you know too much about which one of them is going to do well, because you could end up building all the merchandise for the movie that ends up being a flop, and then you're out of business. So you need to be ready in terms of the options. You need to structure your company and your supply chain and everything, so that the moment you know, okay, this one's the hit, we, we need this, this, any product related to this movie will sell out immediately, and we need to act fast because obviously, these, these trends come and go and, and can change quickly. That's an example of needing to have a, a optionality built into your, into your structure. Much more businesses are facing a situation like that than they think. They might say, yeah, but that's an extreme example. Like we're not, we're not making things, we're not making merchandise for movies. So we don't need to be predicting the next hit like that. You don't, but the market that you work in, that you, that you sell into could not only be transformed, but it could also become obsolete and then you need to shift into a new market. Most of the companies that have managed to exist for the long term have reinvented themselves in one way or another. 
So it's all about being flexible in the face of extreme uncertainty and extreme change, which is what technology has done. You never know. I don't know as a venture capitalist and anyone who does claim to know what the next big technological disruption will be. They're just obviously selling something, basically. There, there, there is no way to know. So all you can do is say, we need to be ready to react when these changes do start to come to pass. And we need to always be proactively in embracing change. And that's another big thing that I always said to my investors and my partners for venture capital is technology, yeah, it's a risk. It's a big risk. But you can also turn it into a, into a huge opportunity. So optionality fundamentally is that message that when you're facing extreme change, extreme volatility in anything, you want to be flexible. And I think we can all agree with that. Luckily, it turns out that the global financial world has been throwing a lot of effort into the science of how to identify and even assign values to options as you find them. So a lot of this was literally borrowed from rocket science when they got started. Uh, people won the Nobel Prize for some of the models that are involved in, in pricing this. And we don't need that, obviously, because we're not, this is not about finance. This is about business and our careers. But it then became understood that that fundamental structure of optionality in finance also applied to or, or applies to decisions and opportunities that we face both in business and in life. And that was tremendously exciting because that said, okay, we can use all of the science that we've been developing for finance and put it at the service of making business decisions and even, even personal career decisions. And so I think that's very exciting. I think that we have the tools exist for us to begin building these frameworks that really allow us to harness this profound technological change and change in the talent economy. And the two, of course, are so inseparable. One of the things that was profound to me is I went through my career journey. I'd watch organizations do these really blunt structural changes to teams, right? Like something would change in technology and it constantly changes. And, oh, hey, this team is no longer needed. And it, it was always fixed. It felt like big chunks of stuff that, that were not good for people. It wasn't good for the organization. You would, you would lose some talent that was necessary. And then when I started working with remote talent, it was much more fluid. People would come in and go and you'd, you'd get the right resources and people would go to another project. And, and I think when you, when you were talking about optionality, that's been the eye-opening thing for me is that there is an amazing amount of people on the planet that have skills that businesses need. And it's not always those structured teams that are within your facility that have been there for 15 years that are going to get you that old saying or the book, what got you here won't get you there. The idea of optionality resonates with me. And I'm, I'm starting to see more and more people choose the path as they embrace optionality for their own career, saying, hey, I, I no longer can rely on the structure of a company to make sure I'm relevant and provide value and I'm taken care of and I'm reskilling. And people are saying, hey, I need to take more control. I need to make sure that I in, embrace optionality. So I think it's a, an important concept. and I really look forward to it exploring it. And I think that the key thing above all, I, I, optionality itself obviously has been around for quite a while, both as a generally understood concept and also as a very valuable business concept. That being said, I think the thing that has not received enough attention that I just want to highlight again and again is the fact that you now have this global talent pool at your disposal on demand. That 
completely expands isn't even the right word. It, it transforms the frontier of the options available to you and how quickly and how flexibly you can act upon them. To those listening who, who are running companies and worried about what the technology means for my company, or if you've had a lot of ideas and the, and, you know, the current structure of the company is just not built around trying that out, my message to you is now you can. So now, now you, have, you have the ability to, to test these options and to make informed decisions on what the next big thing for you is going to be. Because I would go so far as to say you have the combined knowledge of technology and data science available to you on demand. You can bring in the world's leading experts on that to help you identify, is this a good idea? Can, how do we test it? And so business, we've always looked for options in, in business and life. And now this new reality with the talent economy, I think, makes them so much more available to us than they ever have been. As you look out the next five years, what are some of the structural changes that you see on the horizon that may not be at the forefront of what companies are thinking about today? Well, I've certainly seen more and more companies, especially in the last year, admit that even if they still have their reservations about global talent in terms of not just hiring full-time members, that they really just have no choice. I've seen more and more companies admit that, that there is no choice here. So I think that's good, obviously, because it means that it's really sinking in in terms of broader-based acceptance. And the companies that I've seen recruiting, for example, as you mentioned, I, I split my time with Latin America. So recruiting here, when I was here just a few short years ago, that was still, at least for certain parts of the region, still very new. So I'm, I've been witnessing much broader acceptance. And I think we're in a transition moment here where I think we're using transitional language still. So, for example, we talk about mixed teams or virtual teams or even remote, even the word remote. I think that the market is beginning to realize now, the market meaning people who need to be thinking all day about having the best talent available for their companies. I think they're realizing it's not one or the other. You have to use this or else those competitors that do are going to be you, basically. And so I, I would say that's one big thing is that we're going to see broader based acceptance of this that we already are and we will continue to. I think also that similarly with technology, that more and more companies are realizing technology is not a sector, it's a tool and it's a very powerful tool and you don't ignore a tool like that just because you think maybe it doesn't apply to me. It's something that you have to think about and like I said earlier, if there's an industry that isn't using it, that's probably the next place that is going to be transformed by it because it's an open field then. So I, I don't predict. One of the biggest things I learned was you can never predict. But luckily, you don't have to. I think that's the liberating thing about going global, both in terms of talent sourcing and in terms of your own career. You don't have to predict anymore. You can structure your life and your company in ways that whatever happens, you'll be ready to proactively engage with it and make it into an opportunity. That's great perspective, Eric. This is my favorite part of the show. It's the rapid fire section. I'm going to ask you five questions and the rules are, I want you to say the first thing that comes to your mind. Are you ready? Okay, I think so. <laughs> as ready as I'll ever be. <laughs> what is one thing about you that's not on your LinkedIn profile? I'm very passionate about and involved in the arts. I helped build an orchestra in New York. I helped build Lincoln Center's Young Patrons Group. I was one of the original members on that. I love writing in my spare time. 
And I've always looked to the arts as one of my biggest inspirations for business and creativity. I think that should, I think that should be on the profile. If you could trade lives with anyone for one day, who would it be and why? So one of my heroes has always been Lila Jana, and she passed away recently. And I'm rereading her book right now to remember her. One of the most wonderful people I've ever met. And I think to spend a day in her shoes would be life-changing for anyone in terms of the outlook it would bring on entrepreneurship, on the world, on humanity, on, on just about everything. So I think just spending even an hour in her shoes would have been a, a, a revelation to me and to anyone else. Lila, I miss you. I'm rereading your book right now. We're all going to work hard to continue your work. That's inspiring. I, I've read her book every year uh, since it came out, Give Work. Anybody who thinks about this space and, and thinks about humanity and, and our responsibility to make sure people can have opportunity and provide value is really important. And so I'll make sure to put that link in the show notes as well. If you were stranded on a tropical island, what two things would you want with you? I would want to have my Kindle so that I can always be reading and my iPad so that I can always be writing. And obviously some kind of renewable power source, but that's implied. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have to invent that while you're on the island. <laughs> what book or movie has inspired you most over the past year? Thinking Fast and Slow was the book that had the most impact on me that I read over the past year. So that was by the person who won the Nobel Prize in economics for behavioral uh, economics. And it's just a fascinating look at how we make decisions as people. And the last one, what's one word to describe the next decade of work? Limitless. Eric, thanks so much for making the time. If somebody wants to get in touch with you and, and learn more about the work you're doing as, as chief economist or the other work you're doing at TopTal, what's the best way to reach out? The best way to reach out to me would be either LinkedIn, which I love, and also just through the TopTal network. I am an active member of that as well. Eric, I'm excited to learn from you this year and work with you in your role as, as chief economist. Thank you for taking the time and have a great afternoon. Thank you so much, Paul. I'm your host, Paul Estes. Thank you for listening to the Talent Economy Podcast. Learn more about the future of work and the transformation of the staffing industry from those leading the conversation at staffing.com, where you can hear from experts, sign up for our weekly newsletter, and get access to the best industry research on the future of staffing. If you've enjoyed the conversation, we'd appreciate you rating us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, or just tell a friend about the show. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of The Talent Economy.